What happens to supply chains when trade disputes and a global pandemic collide? On a special episode of Global Translations, presented by Citi, we learn how businesses are prioritizing resilience over efficiency to adapt supply chain networks in the face of disruption. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast. Ryan. Louisa. I want to talk to you about the end of history. Oh, great. I love a little light midweek discussion. <laughs> Please go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking back to the 1990s. Astonishing news from East Germany. When the Berlin Wall had just fallen. The Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. Communism was falling and democracy seemed ascendant around the world. And do you remember that book that Francis Fukuyama wrote? Fukuyama thesis about the, the end, end of, of history. history. was one of the silliest ever propounded. And the fuss it caused was inexplicable. Yep. And it just felt like a book that some guy in an American think tank wrote. That kind of encapsulated this idea that humanity had evolved through various forms of crazy forms of government. You know, what I was referring to was really the growth of a kind of universal consensus on the, you know, the justice, justness or the rightness of the principles of liberal democracy. And Western style liberal democracy and free market capitalism had won at the end of the day. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it must have felt that way when you're on one side of the Atlantic Ocean or the other. I mean, like, it was really personal for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I really felt like I was living it. I was born in Poland, and my family fled communism when I was a small kid, and then I'd travel back and forth to see my grandmother and experience the world behind the Iron Curtain and then the world in the West. And by the time I got to high school, the wall was falling. and The Cold War must end. And by the time I got to college, I was studying these post-socialist transitions, and my professors were advising these governments on how to transition from socialism to capitalism. So I really felt like it had happened, that we were, at, in a way, at the end of history. I was so much more removed from these debates. You know, I grew up in Australia. It's the other end of the world. I was still a teenager at the time, and... You know, I'd never explored the rest of the world. I'd been on holiday once out of the country. And Australia is the sort of place where you go to sleep and the rest of the world decides what's important. And then you wake up and you get told what got decided for you. And, you know, I, I thought Australia was just a very young country changing. It was going to pivot to Asia and move beyond its Western roots in its modern history anyway. And, you know, that, that book just didn't feel like a, a real description of our world. Or maybe you were just surfing. I could have been doing a bit of that, too. <laughs> well, we're now 30 years out from Francis Fukuyama's end of history, quote-unquote. <laughs> Some end of history that was. <laughs> Didn't last long, did it? How are those neoliberal ideas working out now, hey? Not great. Over the past few episodes, we've talked about how the coronavirus exposed many problems in the global economy and global supply chains, and it's really left people rethinking whether we need a more muscular role for government. And that's why this week on the podcast, we're talking solutions. We're hearing a lot about what the role of government should be. And even what tools does it have to make supply chains more resilient and the economy more successful. And we've actually got a playbook for this very situation. It's an old playbook they used to call industrial policy. Right. And industrial policy is back in a big way. I mean, it really is. We've heard versions of this from President Trump. America first. And from Joe Biden. My Build Back Better economic agenda. Joe Biden just won the election with a promise of big government investment called Build Back Better 
that includes a big role for the government in fueling the transition to green energy. And just a note, we talked to our guests in this episode before the election. I'm Louisa Savage. And I'm Ryan Heath. From Politico, this is Global Translations. Over the course of all my conversations with people in this series, it's become clear to me that we're really in a completely new global context. So many of the threads we've been teasing, like supply chains, the race to the vaccine, bringing supply chains back to the US, and even increasing domestic production. What all of that amounts to is industrial policy. It's about government forces, in addition to the free market, deciding what industries develop and how. Things like forcing companies to make goods, for example, to help strengthen supply chains or larger society, like giving General Electric a loan to make ventilators during the pandemic. President Trump ordered General Motors to make ventilators under the Defense Production Act. Ford Motor announcing it's teaming up with GE Healthcare to produce 50,000 ventilators within the next 100 days. That's one good example. And that's what we're digging into today. I talked with Jennifer Harris. I have a couple different hats. Who worked in the Obama White House under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And Harris first caught my eye because she co-wrote a piece with one of Joe Biden's top advisors, Jake Sullivan, about how the U.S. needs to find a new economic philosophy. I direct an initiative at the Hewlett Foundation aimed at precisely uh, bringing about an answer beyond neoliberalism. So uh, timely for today's conversation, I think. Basically, Harris thinks that America's free market approach, she calls it neoliberalism, has fallen down on the job and that the United States is weaker economically than it should be, which is affecting its standing in the world. And she's interested in trying to answer the question of what a better economic theory is for this moment. My view of this is that while no one much likes the term neoliberalism, you need to call, you have something to call our current status quo, or at least the status quo of the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, so whether you like that term or call it meatloaf, I don't care. So I wanted to ask Harris about an American industrial policy, which up until now was pretty out of fashion. For you know, decades has been the kind of term that would get you kicked out of meetings in uh, most government circles. And she was like, yeah, industrial policy would get you booted from meetings. But uh, people seem to be coming back around to for a number of reasons. Today, she's one of many people advocating for blowing up the current economic framework we're in. We now have an empirical reality that it is failing us in as a kind of problem-solving matter. We've always had these economic philosophies. Before neoliberalism, it was Keynesianism. Before Keynesianism, it was kind of a, a laissez-faire classic liberalism. Before that, it was mercantilism. I think society always operates within these broad intellectual parameters. And the question is whether they are up to task in solving society's problems. And whatever one might have thought of neoliberalism, say, in the 90s or early 2000s, it seems like as a problem-solving matter, it's patently falling down on the job. If that sounds like economics mad libs, and it kind of is, let's back up. Harris is making an interesting point about the country's economic policy meeting the historical moment that it's in. There's always going to be geopolitical needs that uh, come into what counts as in the national interest at any given time. Let's go back into U.S. history, just for a second. The American Revolution. You've got mercantilism, 
which means the opposite, really, of free trade. You're using tariffs and subsidies to maximize exports, partially because that was the only way that the U.S. as a colony could even compete on the world stage with Britain and France. Coming about as a country in the heyday of mercantilism, and we were not going to beat Britain or France at that game if we had cleaved to our comparative advantage at the beginning of you know, a very young republic, we would have been uh, sending timber and other agricultural exports to Britain in exchange for the Britain's higher ad- value-added manufacturers. <laughs> we would have very much stayed an economic colony, if not a kind of political colony. Fast forward a little less than 200 years and a massive economy later. Now the 30s have begun and there is a new word. Depression. The U.S. claws its way out of the Great Depression with a new deal, a big interventionist government-led recovery plan. The country demands bold, persistent experimentation, the president says, and the country gets it. And then World War II, which saw a gigantic industrial mobilization as part of America's war effort. Then the Cold War. After the Great Depression and the early post-war years in the U.S., it became clear that if we were going to rise to the moment in the Cold War that we needed an economy that would run as hot as uh, we needed it to, and we essentially economically outmatched the Soviet Union as much as anything else. And that required a Keynesian formula of a lot of public investment and making sure that we didn't fall into kind of repeat the mistakes of um, the kind of post-World War I moment of falling into a post-war recession and I think that was, so it was, it was a geopolitical set of uh, arguments that lent further justification for Keynesianism taking root as uh, a kind of an, a new economic consensus, a kind of a common sense about how the economy should look. Then in the transition from Presidents Carter to Reagan, heading into the 80s and the 90s, end of history period we talked about earlier, there was a return to the classical liberal ideas of the 19th century free markets, free trade, Adam Smith, wealth of nations, the whole thing. It became known as neoliberalism. What you find is that around, you know, 1970s, early 1980s, that changes. And it it changes right as the overarching economic philosophy as a domestic matter was shifting away from Keynesianism towards neoliberalism, uh, which uh, wanted to keep the economic realm as a kind of pure sphere uh, that was not sullied by geopolitical interests. And it's no accident that you have, to, even still today, this discomfort within the foreign policy community and using economic tools in this way. So what are the foreign policy needs and shifts right now that you see as necessitating that economic shift? Yeah, great question. So I think what you've seen come about in the foreign policy community is a pretty clear change in tone on China. And you know, even uh, some foreign policy, largely China hands that were arguably softer on China and the Obama administration have come around to you know, a view that whether we had to try something that was more of an outstretched hand and fail first or not, uh, it seems that we are headed into a new Cold War with China. The question is, what does that require? Uh, it seems like, if nothing else, it requires, once again, an economy that is going to run hot enough to allow us to have an overarching presence that we will need to contest a very growing sphere of influence from China. Thing one. Thing two, I think the, the particular brand of China's foreign policy is heavy in economics. It uses economics and economic instruments, not just for 
economic sake. So it's not just trade for trade's sake with China. Uh, these things are brandished as geopolitical instruments, very much intended to pursue a set of geopolitical objectives. And that's uh, traditionally just not the way that the United States has conceived of the role of economics in its foreign policy. Wasn't part of the picture that we assumed that the U.S. economy would just continue on its way and, and be dominant in the world up until now? Right. I mean, I think, you know, again, these economic paradigms or philosophies tend to match the moment. They're, they're pragmatic in that they are matching the circumstances and the needs of society at any given time. It's about whether they work as a problem-solving matter. And look at the 90s, you know, the early 2000s, the, the end of history, uh, as it's often called, where the U.S. economy was hyper-dominant and we didn't face any real peer challenge. It was fine that neoliberal ideas continued to be dominant in the minds of, of both the economic and the foreign policy practitioners that the U.S. had in Washington. The problem is that that's just no longer the case. For the last few decades, the general consensus was that the government should rely on the private sector to shape the economy. But someone advocating for industrial policy would say that the government should step up and guide things more strategically. We just have far more fiscal space and we need to do more to stimulate the economy. And there's a necessary role for government in that. I think there's another piece of it that is just about the unique role of government in uh, being long-term in its thinking. There are, I think, very valid critiques about the way that our entire economy uh, thinks largely to the growing role that finance has played in the past 20 years has become really short-termist. And uh, a lot of the best investments that we can make require a form of patient capital and a long-termism that government is uniquely suited to provide. How much of this is the influence of China? They're rolling out these long-term plans made in China, the AI strategy. They're looking you know, across a century in terms of what they want to accomplish as a country. But they are a centrally planned, communist-run economy. Are they actually influencing um, thinking in the United States, which has sort of been the, the home of, of laissez-faire capitalism to a large extent? Certainly you could look at the, the mainstream shift back to an interest in industrial policy that you see, I think, across. I think it's important to realize the fact that industrial policy has become uh, now no longer a dirty word and, in fact, a thing that a whole lot of serious people are talking about again in the United States as a phenomenon that really crosses party lines. Uh, Marco Rubio has put out some of the best stuff on industrial policy and is something that the IMF, not exactly a beloved institution on the American left, has come back to and re-embraced, uh, as well as uh, having a uh, pride of place in some of Biden's policy proposals. So this is a phenomenon that is that is not... <laughs> that is not just it. What happened? You have Marco Rubio, one of the most conservative guys in the Senate, talking about industrial policy when you said people were getting kicked out of meetings for, for raising the word um, not that long ago. I mean, I think it is testament to the fact that history is again knocking and uh, you're seeing a paradigm shift in a very kind of Thomas Kuhn sense of neoliberalism giving way to whatever the next thing is. Mm -hmm. I don't yet have a crystal ball to tell you the, all of the particulars of whatever this new paradigm will involve. But it, whatever else, I think it has to have a greater comfort with government and the unique assets that government needs to bring to bear. And I think that's uh, nowhere more true than in the realm of industrial policy. Yeah, I just want to go back to this big picture of neoliberalism, the end of neoliberalism. 
I sort of have this image in my mind of, you know, these two sort of hulking dominant fighters. There's neoliberalism on in one corner of the ring and authoritarian capitalism in the other, and they have a fight. And it really feels to me like a lot of people think that authoritarian capitalism is, is winning. I think it it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's exactly the reason why we need to be coming up with a formula that is different than neoliberalism. I think you have China making real geopolitical and economic gains. And that's been happening for the past 15 years for those of us who have been watching. And so the fact that the U.S. is waking up to the need for some different uh, formula for uh, its economic orientation is welcome, if, if late. Isn't that a way, though, to understand the Trump takeover of the Republican Party? I mean, what, in some sense, what it's really been is a pushing aside of some of these neoliberal orthodoxies and, and just blowing them up because they didn't resonate with, with regular people's lives. That's right. So uh, to me, some of the most interesting thinking on this is coming from people like Warren Cass, who is, you know, he was Romney's policy director. He's as conservative as they come and has all the bona fides to prove it, uh, but is, uh, I think, putting out a really interesting issue uh, in the new organization that he runs, American Compass, on labor policy, a very pro-worker orientation and pro-dignity of work, and for that reason wants to see uh, a lot of the kind of public investments that I'm describing. Uh, it's, it's, It's not the Republican Party of you know, yesteryear. Uh, He's very much of the view that the 90s called and, uh, you know, their economics is not what we need now. We'll be right back. Successful supply chains have long been defined by profitability and speed, but ongoing trade disputes and COVID-19 are exposing gaping cracks in our global supply chains, forcing many leaders to rethink how they structure their networks. Now, businesses are making big moves, prioritizing resilience over efficiency. I'm Heather Clancy. Stay tuned for a special branded episode of Global Translations presented by City. We'll look at the transformations brought on by trade impediments, consumer behavior, and digital technologies that make us and our economies more resilient when disruptions like geopolitical conflict and pandemic strike. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast. Louisa, I love where your conversation with Jennifer Harris ended up. It's just so interesting to me that industrial policy is now something both Republicans and Democrats are starting to embrace. We're hearing it from progressives like AOC and Elizabeth Warren, but also conservatives like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio. Right. Joe Biden won the election, but both Joe Biden and Donald Trump campaigned on bringing supply chains back to the U.S. Their ideas were different, but they shared the same kernel that the government does have a role to play in bringing back some degree of manufacturing, whether it's to prevent vulnerabilities, to have more control, to bring back more jobs, or to foster particular jobs of the future, like in green energy. And that gets to a heart of a question. What should the role of government be? Now, one hurdle here is that the American political class isn't used to talking about industrial policy. Sure, there was the New Deal. Yes, the U.S. mobilized for total war in World War II. And since then, there's also been a bunch of military investments, and they've created amazing tools like the internet. But even when they do industrial policy, Americans don't talk about it like it's industrial policy. The idea of free markets is just so embedded in American identity, in a way that it just isn't in other parts of the world. 
So in Europe, they're super comfortable talking about the European Green Deal. They literally ripped it off from AOC and her allies in America, but they've already developed a near consensus on it, and they're already implementing it. And that's partly because they don't have the same hang-ups about the language and the role of government. Right. And that's why I wanted to talk to someone who's been thinking about this issue and really driving the international conversation on industrial policy for years. She's an economist in Europe. Sure. So I'm Mariana Matsugato. I'm a professor at University College London. You're the one who actually told me about Mariana Matsukato, Ryan. I did. And it's a fascinating backstory. I came across her at a conference in the Alps in Austria, and we shared a two-hour car ride down the mountain back to the airport to our homes. Okay, that is the most you story, Ryan. She's very confident in her views, and I'm a bit of a contrarian. So I don't mind that she's radical at all. I love that she sort of disrupts and pushes back against conventional wisdom. But what I can't tolerate is people who don't do the work to back it up. And she's really solid in her research and her thinking. So I loved that she just came in and and kind of blew up that conference. And it really was something that got me thinking about the new role of government uh, in this new, more complicated digital economy. Yeah, and she compared some of her efforts to bring attention to this topic to being an old school pamphleteer. And so I wrote a book back in 2013 that was really almost like, um, how can I say, it was written with the spirit of almost being like the pamphleteers back in the 1800s, which is to really influence quite quickly policymakers to basically tell them they were making a huge mistake because if they did, you know, want to grow through innovation and investment, which is what they were all saying, they wanted to emulate the Silicon Valley model, then it was really important that they actually understood it and didn't just buy into the myths about the role of the private sector and kind of the free market. And so the entrepreneurial state book that I wrote... She's sort of the person who made industrial policy cool again. ...what that meant for economic theory. And here's what I thought was so interesting... Although industrial policy gets a lot of attention on the left, obviously, for example, the Green New Deal, Mariana says she's seeing more and more conservatives taking an interest. How secure or prosperous can America be if it cannot carry out heavy industry or pharmaceutical manufacturing or advanced technology? Florida Senator Marco Rubio is one of them. Now, I am not advocating for a government takeover of our means of production. What I am calling for is us to remember that from the Second World War to the space race and beyond, a capitalist America has always relied on public-private collaboration to further our national security. He actually gave the speech calling for an industrial policy. It is a call to encourage and harness the dynamism of our economy's most productive private industries to further our national security and ultimately to further our national economic development. Frankly. It is a call for a 21st century pro-American industrial policy. I think what Rubio is doing, which is more interesting, and, I, and he reached out, his team reached out when I visited the U.S. last year. They had read my work and actually cited it quite a bit in both the work they did on China, but also in the U.S. Uh, manufacturing system. I think there, too, it risks, you know, seeing China as a threat Um, misses also the trick of what the U.S. could be doing. So let's forget now that we're in such a, you know, antagonist uh, moment between the U.S. and China. But at least up until a couple years ago, you could have imagined a much more collaborative um, relationship between China and the U.S. around, for example, the next big wave of innovation, which I do think is going to be, you know, the Green Revolution. 
we are outlining the Green New Deal. And in the spirit of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we have the Green New Deal and we have Green New Deal projects. And so you can imagine that the U.S., much, much larger, obviously, than Denmark with a you know, great history of um, both in the IT sector, but also new types of services, could actually have sold and exported, um, you know, quite a bit of its competences to a country like China that was really emerging from being quite agricultural to not just being industrial, but, you know, higher up on the innovation chain. And the U.S. could have benefited from that in the same way that Denmark is benefiting from it today um, by taking this very competitive and kind of antagonistic approach and just seeing them as a threat. Again, I think there's an opportunity uh, lost there, but also... It, you know, just focusing even as, um, as Biden does on making America, you know, great again, keep, you know, he doesn't use that word. That's the, no. the Trump word, <laughs> no, but, that's the Trump but word. very much about, you know, keeping manufacturing in the U.S. I, right. I often think that that kind of nationalistic tone sometimes works against actually building a really dynamic innovation system, which by definition has to be global. But looking across different countries, I think traditionally industrial policy here in America has had a pretty bad reputation. And it's the idea that the government is picking winners and losers, that you're subsidizing potentially inefficient companies and production. Is there something that other countries are doing that the U.S. should take note of as it takes a bigger interest in industrial policy? So, I mean, one thing is we need to separate out kind of myths from from history or facts. You know, so the U.S. has pretended to be against industrial policy, but has had one of the most active industrial policies just in a more hidden way than many other countries. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's one problem that if you hide it and you don't talk about it, you also then don't necessarily have enough learning even within the country about what works, what doesn't. But it's, it's false to say that the U.S. hasn't had an industrial strategy. Again, in the entrepreneurial state, I document oh, all the different types of very active strategies that mm. the U.S. had, whether, you know, it was through the kind of DARPA type investments, National Institutes of Health investments, the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program, which has been very successful mm -hmm. at helping small mm -hmm. companies um, scale up through, again, procurement across the different departments, health, defense and energy. Well, let's talk about this moment where we have these twin inflection points, right? There's COVID on the one hand and the rise of China on the other. And during the lead up to the 2020 election, both Trump and Biden responded to this with policy proposals. Biden's been talking about Build Back Better, and he's talking about building supply chains, and he's talking about bringing them back to the U.S. and even Kamala Harris. Building this country back better. I thought this was interesting. She talked about it in her very first speech when she was named the vice presidential candidate. Bring back critical supply chains so the future is made in America. I mean, what it sounds like to me is that they're really hitting the right areas. So, you know, it's both about the funding of the innovation system. And of course, there's this Endless Frontier Act, which I, which I think he supported, which put forth more by people like Chuck Schumer and Ro Khanna. But so there's that issue of what are we financing, right, and kind of rethinking the role of the National Science Foundation and perhaps making it itself more, using the kind of terms that I use, mission-oriented. There's the issue of capacity on the ground. So it's, it's no good to have all this innovation if then it can't actually get diffused in the businesses that we have, right? So actually being able to produce ventilators and personal protection equipment, that doesn't happen out of thin air. That happens through industrial capacity. Um, and I think they're touching that nerve. 
but also this issue of, you know, inclusion. So making sure that the benefits from this innovation actually be um, shared as widely as possible. They're, again, talking about that. So I think those three different areas, plus the whole issue of directing both innovation and manufacturing capacity towards, let's just use the main word that people are using now, a green deal, which is a green transformation of all sectors, um, including old industrial sectors. I think, again, they're thinking about that as well. And so the real issue is how can you make that systemic, coherent and aligned? Because, you know, it's it's not hard to talk about it. What's hard is can we actually fund both, you know, the the public organizations that we know will be very relevant for this. I've already mentioned some before and new ones, you know, like the ARPA-E example from Obama. But what does it mean actually to have proper capacity also in terms of skills development, mm-hmm. those kind of Fraunhofer type institutes that Germany has, which create these very strong linkages between science and industry. We need to be thinking through that kind of structural um, dimension of the innovation system, which has to do with vocational training. And, and this is very important, by the way, with the concept of the just transition. So as we transition away from a fossil fuel driven economy, you know, workers who are working in the the non-green sectors need to be invested in so they can transition. And that's about also vocational training. That's about skills development. Yeah. So, so how do you feel? Do you feel validated? I mean, you've been working on this, beating the drum on this for years, and it feels like increasingly it's being talked about and worked on everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, definitely. And, you know, the fact that even the term entrepreneurial state became, I don't want to say a household word, but definitely within innovation ministries around the world, it became, um, you know, a topic and an interest point. And I was asked to go speak to many governments that are now actually implementing some of these ideas. But Mm. I think that we shouldn't kind of rest in comfort and say, oh, great, everyone gets it now. It it really does require very active kind of um, redesign of some of the things that people might find boring, (laughs) right? And I come back to that issue of procurement or, or also this issue of tax credits, right? In many countries, like in Canada, for example, or, or France and some years in the past, they were overly relying on tax incentives for innovation. And that basically assumes that businesses already want to innovate and you just need to make it easier for them to do that through a tax incentive. And that's simply not true. You know, most businesses are actually quite inertial, quite risk averse, aren't necessarily thinking about innovation. And when they do innovate, it's because they see a real opportunity in a new area. And that requires direct government investments to kind of create that perception that there is a new growth opportunity. Then on top of that, as icing on the cake, but not the cake, you can design well-structured tax incentives. But that kind of policy mix of direct and indirect really, really matters. And if you get that wrong, you risk, in the name of innovation, just increasing inequality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. But what frustrates you? What's the most frustrating aspect of this for you? The ideology is is quite frustrating just in terms of, you know, who's the innovator, the entrepreneur, the wealth creator. I mean, that seems yeah, to not go away. Aren't yeah. they innovators, entrepreneurs, wealth creators? And what's wrong with that? No, there are entrepreneurs and wealth creators, but they are distributed across different types of public, private and nonprofit actors. <laughs> it's not just in business. Um, it, it, it also frustrates me how economic theory still really lags behind and that's been one of my big kind of missions to get the theory itself to well, change. Well, why is that? Um, well, God, uh, that would be a whole other podcast. Let's do that next. <laughs>
I wish I'd known you when I was suffering through applied math in college. But here's a final question. Where do we go from here? Is COVID an inflection point? Are you hopeful? Are we going to take these hits and just get better and stronger and more innovative now as a result? First, you need to ask yourself, what are we, you know, what do we need to invest in? And whether it's global health systems, the Green Deal, you know, digital 5.0, you know, these are kind of that issue around that, that innovation and growth don't happen just by throwing money in this kind of dispersed random way, right? So we need strong objectives, but those objectives need to have a welfare state side to it. So really kind of how are we going to structure it so it really meets citizens' needs and their welfare, their well-being. It needs to have an innovation side. So we actually spend the money producing new knowledge, but also collective intelligence. So the vaccine, for example, if you know the patents are, are structured in such a way that are blocking sharing of information between global scientists, that's not going to help us very much. So how we govern the innovation process itself, but that issue of of manufacturing and how do we actually make sure that we are um, able to produce important goods, whether it's around climate or health, that requires investing in manufacturing capacity, but also in people. And that requires really rethinking corporate governance. But if the companies themselves are not reinvesting their profits back into the real economy, just siphoning them out, that's not going to help us. So these four different dimensions are directing around big global goals, so the kind of moonshot approach, making sure that the structures on the ground really benefit citizens as widely as possible, and we don't kind of allow that rent, uh, rentier structuring, whether it's of the patent system or the corporate governance system, but also making sure we think about the demand side and, again, the welfare state side, which is how do we actually organize society? What kind of public schools do we want? What kind of public health system do we want? What kind of cities do we want? What kind of you know pedestrian <laughs> uh, and, and, and cycle lanes do you want? in a city that has to do with ambition you know what does it mean to live the good life yeah we should remember that it was those kinds of questions actually that often drove innovation so in theory industrial policy is about the government helping to spark innovation drive economic growth creating wealth rather than just redistributing and even creating entire new sectors and one area getting a lot of attention is the natural resources for the future those scarce critical minerals, the things that we need to mine to actually power the green revolution. Right. We're talking materials for your smartphones, materials for the technology that will literally power our future. And that's one area where China is leading. And the US definitely wants to catch up. I think that we've been, as a country, like really confident that the global market was always going to work and that market prices, market relationships, trade, they would always deliver what we needed when we need it. And I think that was always a dangerous assumption. Enough of these dangerous assumptions, Louisa. That's coming up on Global Translations. Our producers are Annie Reese and Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed, and Irene Noguchi is the executive producer. I'm Louisa Savage. And I'm Ryan Heath. Thanks to Jennifer Harris and Mariana Matsukato for talking with me. Global Translations is presented by City, a leading global bank. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and listen for a branded episode from City coming November 11th. Then on November 18th, Ryan and I will be back with another episode from Politico. Thanks for listening and see you soon. <laughs>